Hello and welcome to The Better Business Show with me, Tom Idle. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up this week. To solve climate change, we really need to decarbonize our entire economy. And it, it makes sense to be investing in the most efficient, sustainable companies to do that. Yes, we're talking money, money, money this week in conversation with Ian Monroe, co-founder and chief sustainability officer for EFO Capital doing its damnedest to enable and drive the market for more and more investors to put their money into what Ian calls the climate leaders, not the climate laggards. Stay tuned. Yes, hello, welcome back. This is episode seven of The Better Business Show. Thanks for tuning in, thanks for being there. Yes, we're talking about socially responsible investing this week, uh, the movement of money, fascinating subject and hugely important in the narrative of sustainable business. After all, money makes the world go round. So where that money ends up and which types of companies are able to make the most money and make use of the most money is hugely important in how well the world will be able to cope in the future. So as I say, we're going to be talking to Ian Monroe. Uh, and after we've spoken to Ian, we'll be catching up once again with Vicky Knowles to get a roundup of all the latest news and trends and insights from across the Better Business Marketplace. So stay tuned for that a little bit later on. So in the drive to find solutions and technologies and gadgets and gizmos that create positive social and environmental change in the world, the importance of money and the movement of money and how and where that money is spent cannot be understated. Money makes the world go round. Trouble is, if the world's big money, tied up in pension funds, bonds, and financial instruments that continue to pay for unsustainable products, services, and to fund traditional and unsustainable business models, then it's going to be really hard to change things. Have a look at the best performing companies on the various global stock exchanges, and they are littered with firms from extractives, from coal, from oil, from other big, dirty industries. So what can be done about it? Well, there's plenty. And the exciting thing is that so-called divestment, taking money out of funds and pots which are helping to support unsustainable companies and industries like oil and gas, like tar sands, is a movement which has been steadily gaining traction these past few years. You only have to look at things like Bill McKibben's 350.org, which is a, a campaign getting people to mobilise to shut down the world's most dangerous fossil fuel projects and support the most ambitious climate solutions. Have a look at the Guardian's Keep It In The Ground campaign, which was launched by the outgoing former editor Alan Rusbridger as a sort of legacy vanity project. But it's attracted hundreds of thousands of signatories, hoping to use the power of the media to encourage some of the big foundations, like the Gates Foundation, to divest from the big oil companies. Just last week, you had Copenhagen's Finance Committee agreeing to move forward on a proposal by the mayor to actually divest the fossil fuel holdings of the city's investment fund, which is worth about 920 million euros. Uh, the, the city hopes to become the first uh, carbon neutral uh, capital in the world by 2025. Therefore, it seems totally wrong for it to still be investing in oil, coal and gas, and it wants to change that. In September last year, it was announced that institutions and individuals representing more than $2.6 trillion in assets under management are committed to this fossil fuel divestment. 
And this number is only likely to grow as 84% of millennials say they favour environmental, social and governance investing and roughly $41 trillion will pass to millennials from the baby boomer generation over the next 35 years. So you can see the way things are going. Of course, the concept of socially responsible investment where enlightened investors that care about the planet rather than just making a quick buck are engaging with responsible and sustainable companies it's a concept that's been around for decades. According to Pensions and Investments magazine, money managers practicing socially responsible investing now control almost $6.6 trillion, which is around 18% of all US assets under management. And that figure has grown 76% in just two years. Clearly, the conventional wisdom that investors who bring to bear moral and ethical concerns forfeit potential profits by screening out companies in certain sectors like defense contractors or tobacco companies doesn't necessarily hold up. A report by RBS Global Asset Management says that between 1990 and 2012, the KLD 400, an index of socially responsible stocks, has maintained a higher return on investment than the traditional S&P 500. And plenty more evidence and research reports points to the same sorts of results. And it's no wonder that financial heavyweights like Goldman Sachs and Bank of America are actually embracing socially responsible investment too. Last summer, Goldman spent $550 million to buy imprint capital advisors, which utilizes socially responsible investment. The same month, the Bank of America reported it has invested more than $8.6 billion using SRI strategies. Now, these profit-seeking investing giants aren't using SRI because it's trendy. They're using it because it works. Yet, some financial experts still don't see the potential profitability of socially responsible investment. They believe that investing with an eye towards social responsibility, spending money to improve working conditions or reduce pollution or giving back to the community is actually limiting portfolios and sacrificing their returns. So there's obviously still a long way to go before we see the mainstreaming of social responsible investing and divestment out of dirty industries. Now this week's guest is a man at the heart of this debate and certainly sees the value of channeling monies into the greenest and most progressive of companies out there. Ian Monroe is the co-founder and chief sustainability officer at Etho Capital, an investment management company committed to taking sustainable investment mainstream. So Ian, thank you for joining us on The Better Business Show. Um, now you're an investment management company uh, that promotes socially responsible investment. In a nutshell, what's your kind of uh, elevator pitch? What is Etho Capital and, and what are you trying to do? Well. Etho Capital's mission is really to empower all investors to help solve climate change and invest in overall sustainability by investing in the most sustainable and efficient companies that are out there. And we're combining quantitative sustainability, big data analytics with a real internet 2.0 social feedback mechanism to uh, try to make the most sustainable investment funds that are out there that also have really attractive financial performance. Okay, well, perhaps we'll go into a bit more detail about how you're actually doing that. Uh, but we, we, you know, we hear a lot about this, this shift within the investment community towards putting money into companies that are taking 
their responsibility towards people and the planet more seriously. Um, when when did that start? Do you think, and why is that happening? I I think it's happening because investors are increasingly realizing that they want to really have their personal values as it relates to sustainability reflected in their investment decision making. And this is definitely something you can track through the signatories on what's called the UN Principles for Responsible Investing. And that now has gotten up to around $59 trillion in assets under management. That's actually just as of last year. It's probably substantially higher uh, with over 1,300 signatories. And that just keeps on going up and up each year. And yeah, $59 trillion definitely is a wow number. And mm. then specifically, the fossil-free divestment movement has really modeled itself on the anti-apartheid divestment movement. And it's now the fastest growing investor movement in history. And I think a lot of that is just driven by this increased awareness that we have this moral responsibility to solve climate change as quickly as possible and that investors need to really stop investing in the climate problems in terms of the dirty companies and shift that money into climate solutions. And it's not just a moral responsibility, but it's a fiscal responsibility as well, because as we move to the zero carbon world that we need to solve climate change, really, <laughs> it's hard to imagine that fossil fuel companies will have much higher than zero value at some point. And certainly it's a matter of when, I think, not if, in investors' minds now. And investors are increasingly worried about assets that are stranded assets, these fossil fuel reserves that companies are accounting on their books but really can't be extracted if we're going to come anywhere close to solving climate change and holding the world to a 2-degree or even 1.5-degree warming world. And so if you look at the fossil-free divestment movement, it's gone from being really just a bunch of gung-ho student activists on college campuses calling on their universities to divest a few years ago to now being a movement that has over $3.4 trillion in assets under management that signed on to divesting at least partially from oil, coal, and gas companies. And it's certainly still led by a lot of great students, but it also has some of the world's largest sovereign wealth funds and public pension funds and large institutional investors, prominent billionaires and Hollywood celebrities like Leonardo DiCaprio involved as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's really neat to see this momentum that I think has been building much much more quickly than anybody really expected. Well quite and celebrities will help and I guess, you know, campaigns like the Guardians Keep It in the Ground campaign will help and, and it's it's you know it's a debate and an argument that's becoming more mainstream it's probably not as mainstream as you'd like it to be but it's entering you know uh, elements like uh, cop 21 before christmas i understand that you know it's part of the the kind of the us election uh, debates that are ongoing right now uh, but you know clearly you guys are feeling optimistic and and hopeful that you know that there will be a greater flow of money into sustainable business in the future yeah, and and part of what makes me really optimistic is certainly the momentum on the top-down government decision-making side of things in terms of what's come out of COP. And I was, I was in Paris for all the climate negotiations that led to what I think is really a brown, great, uh, brown groundbreaking. Excuse me, a groundbreaking agreement with the Paris Agreement on climate change and. 
that government's top-down support of policy and placement into solving climate change is really important. Governments have to be a big part of the solution, but I think there's an increasing awareness that investors also need to be a big part of the solution. And investors are doing this not just because of moral responsibility, but they're really seeing that it makes sense in terms of financial returns. Mm. You can look at the decarbonized indices that have been around for a number of years now, and they tend to actually outperform conventional indices. Yeah. And we certainly have found with our own analysis at Etho Capital that investing in the most climate efficient companies tends to outperform the market and companies that are climate laggards, climate inefficient companies tend to underperform the market. And this is, is something that I think really is helping flip the conventional wisdom on responsible investing that previously most money managers and large investment houses assume that if you're doing anything to restrict the universe of companies you can invest in by having sustainability filters, you would restrict the financial returns that you could get. But there's actually a whole lot of data now coming out, not just from us at Etho Capital, but also from Oxford University and Morningstar, the large financial data ratings agency, finding that investing in more efficient, sustainable companies on average actually makes more money. And so that's something that really is is waking up investors to the fact that this is something they they have a fiduciary duty to be paying very close attention to right now mm. yeah and it's, it's not something just for the future so that so the tide is slowly turning um uh, do you think it's turning quickly enough I, I, you know there's still plenty of investors out there that that worry that socially responsible investing will negatively impact on returns how do you kind of turn that around? What, what do they still need convincing of, do you think? I, I think always more data helps. I think with anything, you, you always have some that just are so calcified in their beliefs, and they've been saying that for such a long time, that even really convincing peer-reviewed academic data out of Oxford or large financial data companies like Morningstar saying this won't necessarily flip their views. Uh, it it will change their views as they start losing clients. And you are seeing all the world's largest investment houses now take sustainable investing much more seriously. And this is something that really has happened just within the last couple of years. So uh, getting back to your question about is it happening quickly enough, I, I think it should always happen more quickly than it's actually happening. And yeah. Certainly, to solve climate change, there is really no time to waste. You know, literally every gallon or liter here in Europe of petrol that we're burning is accelerating the problem. And every ton mm. of coal that we burn accelerates the problem, every BTU of natural gas. And it's, it's something that <laughs> the sooner the better on essentially everything that we do, right? So, mm. I, no, I don't think it's happening as fast as it really should, but it is happening a lot faster than I think any of us expected that it would even just a year or two ago. Yeah, which is which is great news. Now, late last year, you launched the world's first fossil fuel-free exchange-traded fund known as ETHO. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we're really excited with what we're doing with the ETHO ETF. And what we're doing with 
ethos sustainability process is first looking at the quantitative climate performance in terms of total greenhouse gas emissions per dollar invested for essentially every major public company that you would consider investing in. We have data for over 5,800 companies globally. That represents uh, about 95% of global market cap. And we're looking at how climate efficient companies are in terms of greenhouse gas emissions per dollar invested. And then we're comparing companies to their industry competitors. And we invest in the companies that are the most climate efficient in each industry. So the most climate efficient healthcare companies, the most climate efficient consumer products companies, the most climate efficient tech companies and utilities, et cetera. And then in addition to that, we're also applying typical socially responsible investment screens to remove companies and industries that are considered unsustainable. So we take right. out all fossil fuel companies to be fully fossil free. So we remove all oil, coal and gas companies. And that includes all the oil service companies like Halliburton and Valero and Schlumberger, which isn't necessarily true with some of the other quote-unquote fossil-free products that are out there. Yep. And then in addition to that, we take out other industries that typically aren't considered socially responsible like tobacco and weapons and individual companies that also generally aren't considered socially responsible. And we remove those individual companies by getting feedback from sustainability experts in academia and NGOs. And we're continuing to build out a network of sustainability nonprofits that are helping feed into this process of sustainability feedback. And so the process creates what we call the Etho Climate Leadership Index, which globally is around 1,100 companies. And then in the U.S. alone, it's just under 400 companies right now. It's gone through this really rigorous quantitative and qualitative sustainability process. And the U.S. piece of it that's just under 400 companies is what's the basis for the ETHO Exchange Traded Fund, or ETF, that just IPO'd on the New York Stock Exchange. Just the, as far as we can tell, world's first fully diversified fossil-free ETF. And right. then we've added on this climate efficiency and overall sustainability screening on top of that. So that's, we're really excited about the ETF because it really empowers any investor to invest in this overall sustainability and fossil-free process uh, for the first time. Uh, the share price is the minimum investment size, so somewhere around $21, $22 a share at the moment. And that is... A, a big departure from how sustainable investing has done, been done in the past, which usually has been done just for large institutional investors um, with relatively high management fees that are charged. So it's really exciting to have a product out there that, that allows anybody really to dive into sustainable fossil-free investment if they want to. Okay, okay. And so how do you, how do you actually assess the companies that are, that are a part of this? Uh, I know that you're, I guess you're defining them as climate efficient, but what, what does that actually mean? What, what, are you, what sort of things are you looking at? So we're looking at their total greenhouse gas emissions, what's called scope one, two, and three emissions, with scope three being the company's supply chain per dollar invested. And that's the core climate efficiency metric that we use to measure each company. And then we compare each company 
with other companies in its industry. So we look at the most climate efficient tech companies, the most climate efficient healthcare companies, et cetera. And that climate efficiency threshold that we've set is 50% better than industry average. So to be in our climate leadership universe and our climate leadership index, you as a company need to be at least 50% better than average in terms of greenhouse gas emissions per uh, dollar of shareholder value. Okay, okay. And then beyond that, we're looking at other sustainability characteristics with a sustainability feedback process uh, coming from sustainability experts in academia and NGOs. And so it's this combination of quantitative data looking at climate efficiency and qualitative sustainability feedback that that creates our climate leadership index that then goes into the ETF and other investment products and indices that we are we are now in the process of launching quite soon. Okay. And is it this way that you analyze and benchmark companies and the way you do that that is kind of giving you the edge that gives you that kind of uh, USP, if you like, that, that sets you apart from what others have done before? Yeah, yeah. We're quite unique in the data set that we're working with because it's looking not just at the sustainability reporting um, that is out there through mandatory or voluntary sustainability reporting systems, so a company's sustainability report, yeah. but it also is looking at a company's required financial reporting and modeling the greenhouse gas emissions based on how a company is spending its money. And we do that in partnership with a, a sustainability data provider that's based in the UK called TrueCost, T-R-U-C-O-S-T. Yeah. And their, their data set is really great and unique because it goes beyond, again, the, the voluntary data, which companies can fudge or just have different calculation uh, methodologies that they apply that make numbers not necessarily comparable, and often the voluntary data isn't really verified through a third party, um, and goes beyond that to the mandatory financial reporting. And in particular, what that data allows us to dig into is a company's supply chain, which falls into the category of scope three greenhouse gas emissions for most, most companies. And really, supply chain efficiency is a big piece of overall greenhouse gas emissions. So sure. yeah. how efficient a company is about using the the cotton or steel or other raw materials or semi-finished products in its supply chain, that efficiency really has a big impact on overall climate footprint as well as overall environmental and social sustainability with a lot of other metrics. Mm. And the data set that we're looking at is, is focused on climate efficiency as this core climate leadership metric for each company. But we think that climate efficiency is actually a very good proxy for overall supply chain efficiency for companies, particularly when you look at it in this full scope one, two, and three greenhouse gas emission context. Yeah. And we think that climate efficiency and overall efficiency also is probably a pretty good benchmark for just how well run a company is, how well, forward thinking its management is, yeah. how quickly a company is adopting new technologies that allow its supply chain to be more efficient. Because investing in efficiency really just makes sense all the time. And this yeah. is a great way to target that and get a better picture. And often it really allows us to cut through the 
the greenwashing hype that's out there for different companies. Yep. Yep. So an example we frequently use is Volkswagen. Um, Volkswagen <laughs> has never been in our climate leadership index because if you look at their climate efficiency, they're, they've been one of the worst automakers for a long time. Um, but until last year, when all the emissions scandal broke, Volkswagen was actually considered by many systems to be a very sustainable company because yeah, yeah. quite good about publishing sustainability reports. And quite frankly, it seems like in in hindsight, they were quite good at lying about all <laughs> Yeah. And that is something that doesn't get caught if you're just looking at the voluntary sustainability data for companies. But if you model their sustainability footprint based on their required financials, you're able to cut through that a bit. So Volkswagen, as I mentioned, because of our partnership with TrueCost and the data set there, we could see that they weren't an efficient company and they haven't been for a long time. And mm. so never been in our climate leadership index or the products we've, we're creating from it, like the ETF. But if you had taken some of the other sustainability systems that are out there, like the Dow Jones Sustainability Index, you'd get a very different picture. The Dow Jones Sustainability Index actually gave Volkswagen a, an award for sustainability right around the same time that the news was breaking about the emissions uh, rejiggering that they had been doing for yeah. years, it seems. So it, it is really important to, to go beyond just what companies say they're doing to diving a bit deeper into what they're actually doing. And, and we have a data set that we're working with that we think is the best available in terms of being able to do that. And, and I guess this is the problem with traditional sustainability indices like the, the Dow Jones. It's something I've written about in the past where you have you know, traditional oil companies performing incredibly well on the on the Dow Jones, you know, the scoring more than 85%, you know, and, and you think, well, how, how does an index like that really help to wean uh, those companies away from kind of models that are not really going to be sustainable for the long term. Is that, is that what you're trying to achieve with this, to correct that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we're, we're definitely of the mindset that if you're giving an oil company or, say, a tobacco company a great sustainability score, then there's really something wrong with your sustainability system. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think you can make a, a pretty strong case that there's no way at this point that fossil fuel companies are going to become particularly sustainable just because their primary product is really one of the primary causes of the problem, at least when we're talking about climate change, right? So yeah. maybe, maybe some of the big oil majors will really dramatically shift towards renewable energy. But so far, they've done it in a very small way, and they've often backed off on what they've started to do, uh, and it seems unlikely at this point. Um, and then you could say the same thing for, say, a tobacco company. You know, when you're, there's a tremendous amount of peer-reviewed evidence finding that your primary product causes very substantial health problems. It's hard to really claim that the other things that you're doing around sustainability really offset that. Yeah. Uh, so that's part of the the philosophy behind our our processes, really cutting through greenwashing marketing to get at true sustainability for companies. And that does sometimes also require that you look more deeply, again, beyond what is the reported data. And another, another example that's kind of a, a counterexample of a company that in many sustainability systems is actually ranked quite poorly, but mm. I know for a fact is a very good company, is, is Tesla. 
Um, right. The electric automaker, Tesla Motors. I I live in San Francisco, went to school, and I also still teach courses on quantitative sustainability at Stanford University. So I've had the opportunity to connect with many of the founding Tesla engineers. And I know that they, as a company, have a very rigorous sustainability process in place, and they're making efforts to make their factories 100% powered by renewable energy, et cetera. So you could, I think, pretty convincingly make an argument that they are one of the, if not the most sustainable automaker on the planet at the moment. Uh, But if you look at many sustainability ranking systems, they actually come out towards the bottom of all companies just because they don't do anything at the moment around public disclosure of sustainability metrics. And I think it's just, you know, because they are still a relatively small company and because they have a product that they are quite convinced is a big part of our solution to decarbonizing transportation and they know their customers know that already so they don't see a major need to be putting out sustainability reports to improve their public relations yeah hopefully they do get more transparent about that i think really it's important for every company to disclose as much as it can and having standards around how to do that is really important but if you look again at the the modeled sustainability data that we work with with our partnership with truecost it shows that tesla is the most climate efficient automaker. Um, mm. But if you look at many other sustainability metric systems that are out there, again, t- Tesla looks pretty bad. <laughs> so mm. that's one of the uh, ways that I use to assess whether a sustainability metric system is actually a, a particularly useful one or not, is looking at companies like Tesla that are a little bit smaller, um, that don't necessarily report on a whole lot, but, yeah. uh, I, you know, it's not always the best decision to look at a company that's not reporting a lot and just assuming the worst about it. In some cases, it may be true, um, but in other cases, it may not be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's half the problem here that you've got an investment community that are not necessarily asking deep enough or the right questions, A, about companies individually or, or B, about these indices. Um, so, you know, are they not taken into to account the kind of the risks associated with things like you know supply chains which you guys are i mean is that half the problem that there's not enough kind of knowledge and ed- education in that investment community yeah yeah i think that's definitely part of it I, I think there's a whole lot of investment advisors and investment product creators that are really trying to get up to speed quite quickly i i am coming at this from the sustainability lens so it's as i mentioned i teach courses on quantitative environmental sustainability climate change and renewable energy and other climate solutions scale up at stanford university so i'm coming at this from the environmental life cycle assessment sustainability geek perspective Mm. and also before working on Etho Capital, uh, launched a startup called Oro Eco, O-R-O-E-C-O, that tracks personal impacts on climate change and turns that into a social game. So sort of like a Fitbit for your impacts on climate. And we started tracking the impacts of your investment portfolio as just part of your total personal carbon impacts. And that's what brought us into doing what we're doing with Etho Capital now and the sustainable fossil-free investment funds. Um, so I'm coming at this from uh, I've dedicated my life to trying to do everything that I can to solve climate change and dive into sustainability metrics background. And 
I linked up with Connor Platt, my co-founder for Etho Capital, um, as a connection to somebody in Connor's case that's come out of the Wall Street financial world and really was looking to get into sustainability in a big way, but wasn't quite sure how to do it. So it's really our powers combined that allow us to do what we're doing with Etho Capital, where I've got the sustainability background and Connor has the Wall Street investment manager background and he's had tremendous experience in that area that I don't have that wouldn't uh, that is really necessary to what we're doing as well. So that's that's pretty unique in terms of our team with Etho Capital is that combination of financial products experience and really deep sustainability experience. For a lot of the other investment management companies that are getting into sustainability, they're they're more coming at it from a traditional finance perspective. So they haven't spent so much time really looking into the deeper layers of sustainability and, and how much you can rely on the data that's out there and where you need to look a little bit deeper. But I think it is changing. I mean, I, mean, I don't want to disparage all the efforts and momentum um, for all the others that are out there in this space. It, it is definitely a, a work in progress, but I think the progress has been really great. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, what's next for you guys? What, what, what's ahead for 2016? Well, we're, we're really just trying to help mainstream fossil-free sustainable investing in every way that we can. So we're, we're working on different versions of Etho Capital's Climate Leadership Index in terms of different geographic focuses and uh, focus on fixed income and yield as well. And we're hoping to launch more investment funds like the ETF, different versions of the ETF uh, that would allow retail investors, basically any investors, to invest in sustainable fossil-free strategies much more easily. And then we're also working with large institutional investors like pension funds and uh, hopefully soon sovereign wealth funds, foundations, etc., to allow them to work in a fossil-free, sustainable way with their investments um, by licensing the indexes that we're producing. And we also are now working on a a fossil-free, sustainable hedge fund that would combine investing in the climate leaders like we're already doing with the ETHO ETF and the Climate Leadership Index with placing shorts, so betting that the value will go down on the climate laggards, the companies that are performing worse than average and are unsustainable, because we're pretty convinced from the data that we're looking at, which uh, anybody can actually play with at ethocapital.com, that climate leaders tend to outperform the market and climate laggards tend to underperform the market. At least that's the case in the past. You know, the, the standard investment manager thing that we always have to say is that you know past performance cannot guarantee future returns and who knows where the world is actually going but certainly just from a personal opinion perspective it seems pretty clear that to solve climate change we really need to decarbonize our entire economy and it it makes sense to be investing in the most efficient sustainable companies to do that yeah it's 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 a safe bet and it's becoming safer isn't it Yeah, and there's a lot of great data, again, coming out of others beyond just us. Um, So Gordon Clark uh, at Oxford University, his research team did a 
a meta study of over 200 other studies and found that 80% of those peer reviewed studies found that more sustainable companies had higher investor returns. And then, as I mentioned, Morningstar, the financial data service company uh, that does what they call star ratings of how good a fund is in terms of its star rating one through five has found that sustainable, socially responsible investment funds on average outperform conventional funds. So there is, I think that the zeitgeist is really building around sustainable investing overall and fossil free investing in particular. And the conventional wisdom is shifting towards uh, the realization that sustainable efficient investments just make sense from a financial perspective as well as a moral perspective. Um, There's still a lot of old school investment managers that are calcified in their views that socially responsible investing isn't good from a financial returns perspective, but I I think that necessarily is shifting. And some of that is also just generational. There was a, a great survey that Morgan Stanley did recently looking at the incredible growing demand in the socially responsible investing space. And they found that over half of all investors are now saying they want to have their personal values reflected in their investments. And younger generations in particular are saying this. I think it's 84% of millennials are saying that sustainable investing is really important to their decision making. Uh, 79% of Gen Xers are saying that. A higher percentage, I think it was 73% of women are saying that. Um, So as more and more money transfers to millennials and Gen Xers and is more equitably managed between men and women, um, I think you're only going to see more and more of a focus on aligning sustainability with investment management decisions. And it's it's really exciting. So we're, we're just hoping to help empower that as much as we can with what we're doing at Ethel Capital. Well, great. And thank you for telling us about it. And uh, I think, you know, the flow of money is going to be absolutely crucial in encouraging companies to think differently about how they operate and the types of goods and services they sell. And, you know, it's great to get some insight into how the, the fossil fuel divestment movement is gaining ground and, and your role in that. So, so thanks for joining us and, and good luck with it all. Yeah, thanks so much. And and we always really appreciate feedback in our process because every conversation that we've had has really made it better. So any of your listeners who want to learn more should just check us out at ethocapital.com and shoot us a note. And we're always happy to share ideas and and share a bit more about what we're doing next. So yeah, thanks thanks again for the opportunity to come on and, and great work with the show. episode of the better business show is sponsored by narrative matters creating content that sings for organizations that want to change the world for more details about how we can help you develop amazing content that really works check out narrativematters.co.uk ian monroe there co-founder and chief sustainability officer for etho capital if you want to find out more head over to ethocapital.com and also have a look at the EFO funds that Ian spoke about at ethoetf.com. Uh, as ever, we have some show notes online which have some, some pics of Ian and all the links to the reference points from this week's show, including the Etho Capital leadership process that Ian talked about. Just head over to Better Business 
show uh, and have a look there. Right, it's time to check in with Vicky Knowles. Vix, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, that's all right. Have you had a good week? It's been pretty good, yeah. The weather's kind of taken a turn, I think. It's got a bit cold, but otherwise pretty good. Cool. Well, thanks for coming back. And so what have you got for us this week? Okay, so um, continuing the foodie theme from last week, Denmark has just opened its first surplus food supermarket. So this basically means selling food that is either past its sell-by date or has damaged packaging, which would mean it would otherwise be chucked away. Um, so the store's in Copenhagen, and it's called We Food, and it's undercutting regular supermarkets by 30 to 50%. So obviously that's going to attract people who need the extra cash, but also it's hoping to draw in the environmentally conscious among us. I'd absolutely love one of these nearby, um, but it seems that the big supermarkets are beginning to catch on to this value of imperfect but edible produce anyway yeah that's true we had obviously had the wonky veg last week didn't we from from asda and i'm sure some of the other supermarkets will probably follow suit um okay so that's, that's good what else is going on next up we've got target who has launched a new line of gender neutral kids homeware so in the past their products have been very pink princesses and ponies for girls and rockets and dinosaurs etc for boys but of course girls can like dinosaurs and boys can like ponies so the new range, which is called Pillow Fort, still has pink and blue colours, but also with black, white and yellow, and also neutral symbols like trees, arrows, astronauts and bicycles. It's in stores now, I believe, and they're expecting the new line could help double target sales of kids' home products within three years. So there you go. Interesting. And, and interesting, they're trying to pin economic hopes on this new range. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, and what else is going on? All right. So finally... Um, a bit of a fun story, it's all happening in LA for Oscar week and on Wednesday it was Global Green's pre-Oscars party aka the green event of the week. This means there was not a red carpet but a green one, both in colour and it was manufactured by Millican using Aquafil sustainable nylon yarn made from waste materials like abandoned fishing nets. Meanwhile guests and celebs arrived in eco-friendly cars, were served an organic menu and they, get to, they got to take home a bunch of green goodies, how nice is that? I think it'd be interesting, Tom, to know how many of the sustainability conferences we've been to actually took the time to consider where their food came from, etc., regardless of the colour of the carpet. Yeah, it's true. I, it's probably not many of them. We're going to be talking to a, a company called Positive Impact who uh, does that very thing that helps companies put on more sustainable events. So we're going to be talking to them in a few weeks' time. So interesting. And uh, yeah, thanks for that, Vix. Thanks for the update for the week. Uh, coming back next week? Definitely, if you'll have me. Good, good stuff. All right, well, uh, we'll see you then. Vicky Knowles there with all the latest. You can follow Vicky on Twitter at underscore Vicky Knowles. So that's it for another week. Thanks again for tuning in. Please give us a shout out during the week. You can go to iTunes and give us a five-star review. That would be wonderful. You can subscribe to the show. You can share uh, with your networks, tell your friends, tell your colleagues, tell your family members. Uh, if you want to get in touch, it's tomidle at narrativematters.co.uk or you can get in touch with me on Twitter at Tom Idle. In the meantime, as I say, you can find us on iTunes, but you can also find us on Deezer and Stitcher and SoundCloud. Uh, so plenty of ways you can tune in and listen to the show. We'll be back again next Monday. So until then, goodbye.